Good evening and welcome. It is wonderful to have everyone here together on this Zoom session, and we thank you for joining us. My name is Michael Whitman. I'm the rabbi of Adath in Hampstead. For several years, Carly and Jeffrey Humes and their two children were integral and beloved members of Adath here in Hampstead. And just a year ago, June 2019, they moved to Chicago and we stay in touch. I'm grateful to Stu Gutman for the idea of reaching out in this way to have a conversation about racism and hopefully to learn what all of us can do to eliminate it, especially in the Jewish world and especially, especially in synagogue. Now, there are a number of formats that this kind of event can take. And Carly, Jefford, Stu, and I decided together that this would be a conversation between Carly and Jefford and me. And we welcome your input, everyone's, your responses, your feedback, suggestions, comments by email. And you can direct that to me. My email is rabbi at adath.ca. And please feel free to send whatever you want to send. And if you have something that is specifically for Carly or Jefford, uh, please send it to me and I will be happy to forward it to them. We are open to continuing this discussion beyond tonight and beyond this format if we all think that it will be helpful. So Carly and Jefford, thank you so much for being with us tonight. And the first and most important question on the minds of your many friends and admirers at Adath is, how are you? How are your children? How are you feeling? And how are you managing through all of this? Okay, that's a great question. Yeah, it's a big question. Yep, well, we are doing wonderfully. We uh, first relocated to uh, Carly's hometown, Buffalo Grove, and we now live in an area uh, east of that called Highland Park. Um, I'm, I'll start with myself, and then I'll let everyone else say their part. Um, so I'm currently working with the same company that I was working with while I was in um, Canada called Nano Integris Technologies and Raymore Industries. So I'm still working in nanotechnology, um, but I'm working remotely. And I'm also now um, a visiting scholar at Northwestern University. So I have an office space there and a laboratory space as well and access to many graduate students who help me with my research. Um, so it's a really uh, wonderful time and I help them with their research as well too. Um, and um, it's been an adjustment professionally, but it's really been working out wonderfully, and um, I'm very happy with the arrangement. Um, and Carly, you can see yourself. Yeah, and for me, I'm finishing up the year. I was teaching at um, Torah Academy, an assistant director and teacher there, and um, I just accepted today a position at a new Chicago Jewish Day School, at a new position in Chicago at a school that I used to teach at a long time ago. I love it. So I'm very, very happy to be back there again. 
Wow. And the children will be and attending the, that yes. as well. And the children were at Tour Academy, and now they're going to be going to Chicago Jewish Music World too. That is wonderful. <laughs> that is wonderful. So glad to hear that. So glad to hear it. Hi, everybody. Yes. So the kids are going to say hello, oh. and then they're going to go because they, you know. Please, please. Say hi. Hello. Hi. Hi. Is that Micah? Is that yes, Eliana? I know all of you that are <laughs> and we know you too. <laughs> it is wonderful to see all of you. You look great. It is just Thank so happy, makes all of us feel so happy. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye. See you later, guys. What is your reaction to the murder of George Floyd? and what is happening in the aftermath of that tragedy. Wow, that's a, <laughs> that's a very, very big starting question. Um, so um, obviously, the, when we were informed about the situation, uh, you know, it caused me, caused my family actually a very great deal of pain um, to you know, I saw some free shots of the um, of what transpired um, in Minneapolis, and um, and I knew that there was also going to be video coverage as well. I heard many people did, you know, have their footage of it, um, but I was really apprehensive to to watch um, what transpired. And um, and Carly could say more on her part, but I think it was. I think we both saw the video on the same day. And I think um, we were both devastated, so saddened um, by what we saw. Um, it just, for me, it was an image that was, was all too familiar, um, but one that, um, that I knew, I believed in my heart uh, when I saw the video, I thought if it's sparking this and me, my wife in, in a, even though I, it's an image that I could say I've seen multiple times uh, throughout my life, and I'll talk more about that later, it still sparked something unique and different in me. And I felt that it was going to be something that would, um, would do the same for other people. And so, um, you know, definitely lit a fire within us, apart from the sadness that first ensued. Um, but, um, you know, because to us, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it, was a, it was a great tragedy, not just because of what happened, but also because of how it happened. Um, watching a police officer uh, apprehend, you know, someone always gives you a little bit of anxiety and angst to begin with, or when, you know, they're on the ground or pinned on a hood of a car, you know, you obviously have a bit of tension and, um, and anxiety when you're watching such a scene, but you know, when you see someone's neck, um, knee on someone's neck, you know, it sends um, a bit of frustration, a bit of uh, longing for that person's life through you. And um, but just not only the action itself, but how the action was done. I think many people have commented on this, but, you know, I'd be remiss not to say it, but to watch someone essentially take someone else's life with their hands in their pocket you know, as though they're taking a stroll through a beautiful park, um, hurt my heart um, to no end. And, um, and the nonchalant approach to what ended up causing the um, dearth of a life 
um, something that, you know, I know will be an image that will be etched in my mind for forever, the rest of my life. Wow, very powerful. Can I say that I made the mistake of watching the video because I feel that it was a mistake to watch the video because it was horrific to see, um, you know, a human being's life being taken right in front of my eyes by a police officer who had just no regard for his life whatsoever. It was like, um, it was unbelievable to watch that. It was really terrible. And it sparked something in me that I like didn't even know was there. I mean, I, the, the fear and the anger and the rage that I felt after that was just, it was powerful. And I had to like really figure out all of my feelings and how to deal with them because I thought, this happened in broad daylight in front of an audience and he had no qualms about what he was doing. And one thing I have to say is that I feel that after that, so many people were on the same page. We all felt the same thing. We all felt this is terrible. This is a tragedy. This is horrible. How could he do this? And I don't believe there was a single person who felt that this murder was justified. And I really appreciated that we were all on the same page in terms of what happened to George Floyd. Amazing, amazing. Thank you very much. Um, what reaction have you seen in the Jewish world and what do you want to see in the Jewish world? Oh, that's, wow, that's, that's a really wonderful question. Um, now, obviously, we've, we've seen different reactions in the Jewish world, um, different, you know, as broad as we are, there's many different spectrums. Um, you know, we have seen, it, it's, the Jewish response to us has, has oftentimes been very beautiful, um, but has also been a little bit saddening at times as well, and sometimes very frustrating. Uh, just to be honest, I know this is a, a candid conversation and Carly will speak more um, because you know what I find for myself is that um, well I, I'm giving, going to give my perspective and Carly will give hers but uh, for myself I tend to find that many of my friends and Jewish Jewish friends and colleagues and um, even religious uh, spiritual leaders um, I don't know if there was an aversion to discussing the matter with me out of fear of how I would respond or perceive them, or if there was a feeling as though there was not the proper words to say. But I know I have to admit and be honest, and, um, and it's not to be mean, but it's, it's, I was disappointed in the personal Jewish response that I received. Um, I, um, you know, I did expect more, a little bit more empathy or a little bit more concern um, about my perspective, about my feelings. I really cherish and honor you, Rabbi Whitman, and all of the friends who did reach out. To, but I, I really respect you for what you're doing and the stance that you've taken and the concern that you've shown and even wanting to address this issue. I've, I've personally found, um, you know, I, I deal, as you know, I studied Daf Yomi um, with a rabbi. I, I, I have a Torah mate. 
uh, in different parts of the world and different parts of the nation. And so I network with many different uh, leaders in different parts of even this city. And um, I have to say that there was a silence. There was an absence of, of um, expression about this matter. And it hurt. It really, it really hurt me. Um, uh, as I said, I know that maybe people didn't know the proper words to say, or, but what that is interpreted as is if, for me, is sometimes you feel, if someone's not asking you about a situation or if someone's not talking to you about it, you feel one of two things. You feel as though maybe they don't care about the situation. Maybe it's not even important to them. And then number two, you feel, well, maybe they've, they're not saying anything to you because they feel as though they don't support what your stance would be. So they would rather not talk to you about it because maybe they feel the complete opposite of how they think you would feel. But one of the things I'm going, uh, one of the things that I say to my son, I'm going to tease him a little bit. You know, my, my son is socially awkward. Um, and sometimes he has difficulty connecting with friends and, and making new friends. And one of the pieces of advice that I gave him is I said, oftentimes, Micah, we so much want to say the right thing and to have wonderful statements and impress everybody. I said, but you know what to do when you don't know the right thing to say, you don't know the right thing to do. And he's like, what? I said, ask questions. Humble yourself and just ask the other person about them. And in this situation, it's like a, a, a lesson I taught to a child, but I wanted that same lesson returned to me. Okay, maybe you don't know the right thing to say. Maybe, you know, you don't have the eloquent Martin Luther King-esque speech for me, and I understand that. But just ask me, just put your hand on my shoulder and say, how do you feel about what happened? How do you feel as a Black man? How do you feel as someone who grew up in the inner city of Chicago? Have you felt, has that happened, has something like that happened to you or a friend? You know, no matter how you feel about it, when you ask someone, just asking someone how they feel makes them feel so encouraged, makes them feel loved, and that you're, and that you can, that you are showing concern for them. And so the silence that I received afterward was, was saddening to me. I'm not saying this is from every part of the Jewish world, but from many of, as I said, the contacts and the leaders that um, I interact with, that was um, the response. Let me just add, first of all, Jeffrey, thank you so much for the honesty. And, and obviously that's what we want and that's what we need. The only way we can work for, move forward is with that kind of honesty. Uh, and also, thank you so much for highlighting such an important lesson that every one of us needs to remember. There is a phrase within the Christian world of chaplaincy called the ministry of presence. And it means when there's an issue, you, you, you have to be there. You have to be present, whether you know what to say or don't know what to say, but you can be present. And I thank you so much for reminding all of us in every area of life, but especially in this area, just to be present. Thank you very much for that. Carly. Okay, and for me, I, um, I would say that during this time, I have seen the true colors of 
all of the Jewish people in my life. Some are beautiful, some have expressed concern, some have contacted me saying, I want to know more, what can I do? You know, tell me what books to read, tell me what movies to watch. I mean, people have really like reached out and wanted to know, you know, um, how they can make a difference, you know? And then I've had others that start sending me videos of things and start sending me um, ugh, just things that I know they mean well, but it is just like the opposite of what they should be doing. You know, sending me Candace Owens videos and sending me um, words about how, you know, if black people were just not criminals and if they just were good and if they just followed the, you know, the straight line, then this wouldn't be happening to them, which couldn't be further from the truth for, I, it's not for every black person, you know, I'm sure for some, sure, but that doesn't, that, that doesn't go for every single black person. And so when people were making these blanket statements to me, you know, I think they almost forgot that this is my husband, that my children are my children, you know, they're a part of me. So when people feel that way, they think that way and they say it to me in one regard, I'm glad they feel so comfortable to talk to me. And in another regard, I am so hurt by the fact that they are not seeing human beings for human beings. They're seeing, uh, oh, if they're black and they're getting shot and killed or, or killed by a police officer, they must be a criminal. They must be doing something wrong. And the fact is, is that George Floyd was not a saint, but he did not do anything that constituted his murder to happen at all, nevertheless, in the way that it did happen. And that is what I keep saying over and over again to people. He used a counterfeit $20 bill, which we don't know if he knew or not, you know, we don't know. But regardless of that, he did not resist arrest. He did not cause a problem. He went down, they put him down and they killed him in cold blood. And nobody deserves that. I don't care if you were a criminal before, if you did terrible things before, he did not deserve that. And so for people to say those blanket statements to me, very matter of fact, like, why don't you know? This is just the way it is. It really, um, it really hurt me. It really did. Wow. Thank you. Thank you, Carly. Um, what is your view of Black Lives Matter? Well, well, you know, Carly and I think we're, we're, very, we're very united about the Black Lives Matter movement. And we, um, you know, We've, we've received a lot of opposition from, you know, many friends with, within the, especially the Orthodox Jewish world about the Black Lives Matter movement. Or the, and that's what I was going to say. For us, we try, our, we try to separate the organization from what the organization stands for and what the words represent to us as a family. Um, during these times, um, we want to promote the fact that because black lives are so endangered and because there is still racism and because there is still um, unnecessary force being used in much higher proportions amidst the black community than it is in any other community, we stand behind this, the, um, the premise of the Black Lives Matter movement that black lives are in danger at this time and that they, the lives of Blacks do matter. We believe, of course, in the unification of all lives and the desire for all lives to be protected. But in this moment, at this time, 
we feel that it's it's very important that that focus that the focus be um, on that on this cause at this moment. Um, getting, a, getting a call here, didn't, didn't expect it. That's all right. Okay. Uh, yes, Carly? Something that I'd like to say to you about that is um, one of my friends gave a really great analogy of Black Lives Matter and how to explain it to people that I thought was so beautiful and I want to share it with you. Yeah. So um, he was saying that if you hurt your thumb, okay, you hurt your thumb and you need a Band-Aid, right, because it's bleeding, whatever. Well, you know, you could say like, but wait a second, what about all my fingers, right? But you know that this is the one that is hurt. This is the one that needs the care, right? So all, it takes all of your other fingers to put the Band-Aid on the finger that hurts. So the best way that I have heard it described is that all lives matter, but, right, but it's the black life, the black lives that matter, that need the care right now. And it's up to all of the other lives to help care for the life that needs care at the moment. That's a great way to, to put it. Um, my role here is not to talk, but to ask, but I do need to insert just a couple of comments and I hope that that's okay. So um, from my perspective, um, I think that there's confusion and I hear this especially within the Jewish world uh, because there is at least one of the organizations that has as part of its platform a, an anti-Israel um, uh, plank in its platform. And I think that a lot of people are making a mistake that Black Lives Matter is not an organization. Black Lives Matter is an idea. And to confuse the idea with the opinion of one of the organizations would be the equivalent of confusing the statement or opinion of one individual rabbi with the values of all of Judaism. And I just want to say very clearly, I stand with Black Lives Matter. Thank you. That's great. Thank you. Yes. What is your view on the looting and rioting that has taken place? Uh, fortunately, um, it appears to be receding. And what we see now is much more of uh, peaceful protests that continue and even grow. Um, and also, you know, uh, it's just horrifyingly incredible to me. Uh, we are learning about more instances of police brutality uh, as they emerge and as they continue to happen, like right. in Atlanta. So, but, but, but in terms of the looting and rioting that was more uh, prevalent early on. What, what is your view on that? Yes, I, I wanna talk about that because uh, I want to by no means justify the looting and the rioting, but I feel as though it is a little bit of my responsibility to kind of bring you into the psyche as well of what transpires in those moments also. Um, I, Personally, you know, would never be involved in a looting or rioting. Uh, you know, of course, I try to keep the laws of Hashem, would never try to steal from anyone consciously. Um, but at the same time, I also, like I said, I want to bring you into a bit of the psyche of what transpires. First of all, there is the feeling immediate when you see these videos, 
over and over again and you read the stories and you read about you know the hundreds and you know thousands of people that have been wrongfully convicted and tried over the years and and moments pinnacle moments like this happen um it just sparks this this anger this rage this frustration and um and many people as we all know there's Many of uh, there's different levels of self-control and, uh, and abilities to express yourselves. Some do it eloquently through speech. Others are, are do it through action. And, you know, these times that sometimes, you know, even Martin Luther King, I believe he was said that sometimes riots are the expressions of the oppressed. And many times in those moments, I believe that there are times in which people allow themselves for their anger to, to overwhelm them. And, um, and with, the, with the looting, it's also an effect of people's perceived social disparity. And so many times and with, when these lootings happen, it's, it's hard to watch on the outside, but what I believe that it's hard, it's what people do not understand is that it's a response. It's saying in this moment, I know the times are changing, that that this is a moment in which life is balancing itself. Justice is being, is being brought to the forefront and it's their way of trying to bring their own social justice. They feel like there's these stores that are in my neighborhood. I don't even have the money to afford these things. I can't just go out and buy the TV that I want and buy the microwave that I want. I'm gonna take it. I'm gonna bring that balance back to life that the world and society has, has taken from me. And, um, and that is a, is a mindset that I want you to know that does happen. That does happen in, in people that feel oppressed. They feel in these moments that this is the time to, to stick it to the person who oppressed me and that didn't allow the system that didn't allow me to get the job that, that allows me to afford these things that everyone else seems to have access to so easily and that I, I desire. So like I said, by no means do I condone it but I also want you to know that the rioting and the looting that you first see is that response. It's that visceral response and that immediate reaction to injustice, to feeling like, well, I'm going to bring balance in my own way to the injustices that I see in my community and in my nation. I, 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 I thank you very much. Carly, did you want to add to that? I, I, I think. Okay. So, uh, Jeffrey, I, ha I have to say uh, thank you very much for uh, being able to express um, something that that everybody needs to hear very, very clearly and carefully. And that is, there can be uh, competing ideas or or impressions uh, that stand side by side. And I think it's so important for all for everyone uh, to hear the level of frustration and anger uh, and, and sense of uh, injustice at the same time as you are condemning lawlessness and, uh, um, um, and anything like that. There's, there's someone who I respect um, who said, it's all, I, another aspect of it from what I can see, again, I'm now I'm adding my own editorial. I'm, I'm going to try to keep this part short, um, okay. is um, uh, to differentiate between protesters and looters. And uh, from what I understand, those are largely two separate groups. 
And um, someone that I respect said that there's a difference between calling for peace and calling for quiet. A lot of people don't necessarily want peace, they want quiet. Yes, that's very but true. The overwhelming majority of people I'm quoting, marching, were not breaking windows. They were trying to break barriers. They weren't trying to steal. They were trying to get back the justice that was stolen from them. And yeah. so I think to be able to, to see that in a more um, comprehensive manner yeah. and, and to be able to condemn any act of violence or, or lawlessness, I, I think that's very, very helpful. Thank you. And, Thank you. and it is very true. And I just want you to know too that, as I said, it's typically a visceral response. And then of course, many people, there are a segment of people that will seize that opportunity to then just, you know, there's no sense of balance or anything like that. that sees the, the moment. But, um, but at the same time, I've always seen, I mean, through my study of history and through my lifetime and seeing a couple of these things happen, um, that the voices of reason do prevail. And that you will, it's rarely just going to fall into complete chaos that in the end, um, um, there are civil rights activists that stand up and say, we cannot do this, this is not the way to go. And the people unite and focus on peacefully protesting for the cause itself. And I also want to say too, that when all of that started, I heard too many times, we were with them and then they did this. And now, you know, what are we fighting for? Because look what they're doing. And again, that's so upsetting because as a white person, and I can speak as a white person because I am one, you know, we don't know what it feels like to have all of those years, generation upon generation of oppression. I mean, I'm reading books to my children that are bringing me to tears every night because the, the, the pain and the sadness that I feel from reading the story is like nothing in comparison to a person who experiences it firsthand. And that's really like, for me, my, you know, it, I, we, I keep saying, you know, as white people, we just need to listen, we need to listen, we need to listen. We don't need to talk, we need to listen because we need to understand better where people of color are coming from because we will never ever know really what it feels like to be them. Thank you, thank you. That is, that is very true and very deep. So um, along those lines, this is a little heavy. Can you tell us about incidences of racism that you have personally experienced? Wow, that is a very deep, deep question. And, you know, I will, um, I do have a few examples um, that I would like to share um, at, from different stages of my life. Um, and and, and in, it's in relation to everything that's being discussed now. So I'll mainly focus on um, interactions with with police officers um, for now um, so one of the biggest examples that I had um, well I'll start with with being a teenager um, I used to live on the far south side of Chicago 105th street and in in getting home I would have to take a I would take a bus to a train to another bus and then I would get off exit the bus and then walk about four blocks home. Um, I lived in this community for maybe four, 
for about three, two to three years of my life. And I want you to know that probably once a month, once a month as I was walking home, I and other black children were told by police officers just at random, you would hear the, you would hear the tire screeching and you knew what you would have to do. A tire, if, if you hear tires come screeching behind you and a little boop boop, it meant you had to get against the wall with your hands, hands up on the wall, spread your legs so that they could search you, make sure you're okay, make sure you're not carrying anything. Now, I was a student, backpacks on, you know, walking home. And um, of course, you know, moments like that are very degrading. And I, it's, my mother doesn't even know how many times that happened to me as I was walking home. Now, I'm thankful I didn't fit always the profile. And there were a couple times where I'd go up against the wall and they would say, not you, go on, walk, you walk. And you know, I was, I was thankful for those moments, which is another thing I'll talk about a little bit later, about sometimes why, why that was able to happen and I thank my parents for it. Um, but that happened to me so regularly as a teenager. I just, I just learned to know the sound, what to listen for and to go, oh, where's my nearest wall? Hands up on it, legs spread. Um, but later on in life when I thought, okay, I've made it out of the city, I'm college educated, I am now working a wonderful job as an, an, as an electrical engineer immediately after college, I was so excited. Um, one of the things that happened, two things that happened to me that I want to bring stories about interactions with, with police officers that I felt were just completely based upon race. Um, one of them was um, I was um, coming from a, I was on a business trip actually, and I was driving through kind of a mountainous region, I was coming down a hill and I remember thinking, I'm not gonna let my car go as fast as it could go because I'll probably end up speeding. So I remember catching, going slowly down the hill, um, prefacing all of this and coming from a business trip, dressed in a suit. Now, I'm always dressed in a suit on business trips, it's something my brother and I, something I taught my brother to do, something that we learned to do when we fly, um, to not look typical. Uh, it's also the way that we were, we were raised because we never wanted ourselves to be bound by the stereotypes of another person. So when we fly, we don't look like a quote unquote typical black person. We try to dress respectfully so that we could be treated with the honor and the dignity that everyone should have. Um, but we can see that we saw growing up the differences in treatments between looking typical, fitting the profile and dressing more respectfully, so to speak, or formally. So on my business trips, whenever I fly, I try to dress in a suit, dress very formally. So I was coming, heading to my hotel. This is um, in a uh, part of Texas, uh, a little outside of San Antonio. I went past police officer once again. I was 100% not speeding and driving a rental car was upgraded. I think it was, it wasn't like a Lexus, but it was like a very, very nice rental car. Um, I drive past and there's a little bit of a delay and then all of a sudden, you know, he comes out behind me and I'm thinking, what did I do? I know I was not speeding. And then I thought, oh, it's probably, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, it's probably because I have um, 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 Illinois plates. And I realized, no, it's a rental car. I don't have Illinois plates. These are Texas license plates. So he pulls me over and, um, and I said, uh, hello, officer, I'm going to help you. And I'm thinking he's going to say you are speeding, but he didn't. 
he was very forthcoming. He said, could I, could I see your ID? And he said, oh, I know what you Chicago boys bring. You know what? I'm going to follow you till you get out of my town. And I said, I didn't say anything. I said, okay. <laughs> Took my license back. The reason, literally, he told me the reason I was stopped was because I was black and he wanted to look to see who I was. And then when he saw I was from Chicago, then he thought, oh, you know, and to call me a boy, I mean, how insulting. I was a man at this point. And like I said, not dressed sloppily, not looking tacky, dressed very formally with my suit in the back, um, briefcase, briefcase in the back, suitcase in the back, and um, on business. Um, and so he followed me all the way. I mean, just feet, 10 feet, 20 feet behind me until I left his town and then saluted me as I left his town. So that was, um, you know, one of, one of those moments. I'll tell one other story um, because many times people think that you're targeted because of how you look and because of how you are dressed. And so I'll give you another example. Once again, I was working with this, the same company as, a, as an engineer and I was coming from, um, uh, I was driving to work. The, there was a terrible accident on um, an, a expressway here called the Stevenson Expressway. So I had to go on the side streets. Now I was going through an area called Bridgeport. For people who know the Chicagoland area, I was told my entire life, stay out of Bridgeport. The people there and the cops there are so racist. I, I had never personally experienced it. I, I didn't, um, I know there were stories that people would tell, but I thought, look, I'm gonna be fine. Got my nice little car here. I'm, I'm just, I'm driving through. Now in this case, I'll admit I was speeding. I was going five miles per hour over the speed limit. So I was going five miles per hour over the speed limit um, at about, I don't know, 9.30 or 10 o'clock or something, heading in after coming from, from the airport from another trip. And um, behind me came speeding again, a, a police officer. Um, comes behind me and I said, oh, hello, hello, officer. He said, do you realize that you were speeding? I said, oh, and I was honest. I said, yes, I see that I was, I was going a little bit over the speed limit. He said, get out of the car. I was shocked. I thought I was missing something <laughs> that he saw. And for the, one of the few times in my life, he threw me onto the hood of my car. I was not expecting it at all, this reaction threw me onto the car. Now, when this happens, one of the things that are always done as you watch in the George Floyd situation that frustrates you so much and belittles you so much is there's always, I guess it's because it's so destabilizing to your body, there's always force applied to your head. So you're all, you're, when I was pushed on the hood of the car, my, my cheek was pressed against it and you're so off kilter, off balance with, with what's going on. And, um, so I was thrown onto the hood and, um, and you know, searched. I was just, I think I was just in complete shock that this was even happening as I'm driving on this beautiful, like cute little street, heading to work and thinking about what I'm gonna do in my work day and you know, telling them how I was gonna uh, um, tell them all about what transpired on the trip and, um, and then to have this happen. And so what added insult to injury during this time is there was a man across the street, black man who was crossing the street. And he said, shouted across the street, 
leave the black man alone. <laughs> and the police officer with his hands still on my head and still pushing his hands all through my pockets, um, said to this man across the street, shut your mouth or you're next. <laughs> I mean, this was just an unbelievable occurrence to me. I mean, to this day, I, I'm still shocked, you know, that, that this is, it's never, this has happened to me again, which I can share, but, but um, not quite to this extent. Now, of course, the police officer, unless he had planted something, there was nothing he was going to find on me. I don't smoke uh, anything, definitely don't do narcotics. I barely drink, um, um, maybe for Havdalah. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, everyone, you know, so very clean living. And so um, there was nothing that he could have found on my person. So eventually he, he let me go, gave me a ticket for the five miles per hour over the speed limit. And just so you know, when I went to the, the court, just to kind of add the, just the end of the story, the police officer did not present himself. And the, the judge looked at the, the ticket and he said, you have a completely clean record from what I can see. I see you're going five miles per hour over the speed limit. And I mean, I don't know if he just thought to himself, I think I know why you were stopped. But he just said, no, I, I, don't, I don't think this is justified. No, no problem. Sorry to, sorry to waste your time today, sir. And um, so that was at least a little bit of personal justice that I felt after that. But, um, you know, it's, it's one of those incidents that when people say, oh, you know, what was he doing to get, to get thrown on the hood of the car? What was he wearing? Or he must have had tattoos or the, he must have mouthed off to the police or something. You know, I can tell you personally that that is not always the reason that you are shown the aggression of a police officer. And um, in those moments, you know, you have to try to be very controlled because you know that, especially with someone as angry as this unjustifiably, you know, one of the things that my parents that I grew up learning was, um, you know, it's, it's sad. And I want to talk about this later, but I'll just bring it up a little bit now is um, kind of how to handle those situations when you're in them as a black man. And, um, and so one of the things is you have to overcome your natural instincts to try to survive in that moment. Because you think to yourself, if someone is this angry unjustifiably, if I swing and punch him, if I try to say, get off of me, what would the reaction be of a man who was already that angry at you unjustifiably if you gave him a justification to hurt you? So um, in that moment, I kept my cool, knowing my innocence and prayed that everything would end okay. I also have a story actually. Um, and it happened just last year when we were going to Disney World. So um, like Jeff said, he always dresses up to go on the airplane. And we were living in Canada at the time. And so we had to go through customs to go to Disney World. And so, you know, whatever, we've been through customs numerous times. We go back and forth to the state every year. And we knew that like some customs officers are, you know, much more strict than others and others are, you know, a little bit more laid back. And so we know that, you know, you never know who you're going to get. 
So we're standing in line and we see the customs officer working with people in front of us and she's laughing and giggling and she's happy and she's smiling. And I said to Jeff, oh, good. We have a nice one. Like, this is going to be great. You know, it'll be easy. No problem. So we get to the front when it's our turn. And Jeff was getting our passports and everything ready. And I watched the officer with the big smile on her face. Look at Jeff and her smile just went away. And I watched her all before being so nice and kind and lovely with all the people in front of us. And she was harsh and cold as ice with us. And this is one of those things. And I and just to interject to immediately, I didn't even realize what was happening. So I was still trying to be affable and to be nice to her as well, because I saw how well she was getting along with everyone else. And I thought, oh, she seems very friendly. So I was trying to be friendly as well, too. I didn't even know what was happening at the time, because we were getting the passports and getting ready. So, um, so what happened there is um, something that somebody, a white person who's not sensitive to it, could easily brush off. Oh, you're being too sensitive. You know, you know that those uh, those customs officers, they're really tough sometimes. And listen, I thought of all of those things. But what you guys don't know that I know that I was there is the pit that happened in my stomach when it happened. I knew right away that this was not right and that this was not fair. And that was the difference, the subtlety of it all. I almost was like, did that just happen? Like, am I really seeing what I think I'm seeing? Because it was so subtle. It was so subtle. If you blinked, you missed it. But I felt it. I saw it and I felt it in the pit of my stomach. And I am almost grateful for that because I feel like that happening opened my eyes to a new sensitivity that maybe I didn't have before. You know, it showed me, wow, all the times that, you know, people of color say this happens or that happens or whatever it is. And, and us white people were like, oh, you're being too sensitive. Oh, you know, come on. Like, well, you know, maybe they were having a bad day. Maybe this, maybe that. Because I witnessed from start to finish this woman's mood and attitude and behavior from start to finish, there was no question that she looked at him. She didn't look at me. She looked at him and her entire demeanor changed. Wow. Thank you. First of all, yes, no, go ahead. No, I was just going to add to that, um, just, just so you know, so that um, uh, it's, it's one of the, the things too within this walk of life, of being a Black person in, in this world that is also something that, you know, it makes you it can harden you to it, but it's something that is, is a continuous frustration that's on you all of the time. And as Carly said, it's no one attacking me over the head with a stick or throwing me down on a car every time. But the feeling you get when you clearly see that everyone is happy, that someone is happy with everyone else in the room but you. And the only difference you have is your skin color it breaks your heart. It breaks your heart when you can be in a class and um, have someone smiling every time someone raises their hand to answer a question. And then when you raise your hand, they have to frown first and then say your name. It's, you know, it's one of those things, it's so subtle, but it hurts you because it, 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 it demeans you so much. And it's one of those small oppressions that you feel because it's like, it kind of, it's like a little hammer. And every time it happens, it just kind of knocks you in your peg just a little lower, just 
Just a little lower. Just a little lower. It's not big. Like I said, it's not a race riot. It's not someone throwing a dog at you. But with every look of despise, every look of frustration, every time you're treated in that way, it just knocks you down a little bit more and makes you, makes you feel like less and less of a desirable and important human being. Wow. I, I'm so grateful to both of you for, for sharing that and, and the range from subtle and, and how that builds up over time to more uh, acute that, that you described. Uh, it is very painful to me to hear that having happened to you. Um, and, and at the same time, I think that no matter what we see or how much we read, or think that we understand um, when we hear this directly from someone that we know and admire and love, it, it just has a completely different impact. And so I, I'm very grateful to you, uh, as painful as it is, I'm very grateful to you for giving everyone the opportunity to hear that directly from you. Um, I want to switch focus just a little bit to shul, to synagogues. Yes. What have you heard in shul that, even if it was unintentional, was racist and hurtful? All right. The first thing that I'm going to say is... Um, all of you all should know that I went through conver a conversion process. And so my family's biggest, one of their biggest apprehensions, apart from the change in religious beliefs, was that I would be castigated, that I would be uh, put to the side, that I would be demeaned within the Jewish world. And one of the first things that I want you to know before I say any answer your question is that my experience within this process has exceeded my expectations completely. And any type of prejudice that I had, I want everyone to know that the Jewish world has really embraced me and that all of the people that I've met have made me feel um, as part of the brotherhood and welcomed and Carly sometimes jokes that she thinks they like me more than they like her <laughs> but <laughs> so first of all I want everyone to know that um, as in overall Jewish experience has been wonderful as a black man and that um, I do feel beloved I do feel loved um, and so there aren't many occurrences like this that I have to say. Um, I will give you um, one way um, in which I felt uh, slighted uh, when I attended a new shul uh, once. Um, this was after everything was said and done. I, as, as many of you know, I take business, international business trips. I sometimes travel to Japan or South Korea or China, uh, to England at times. Um, and hopefully to Israel soon. Um, and when I go, I try to attend a Chabad, um, uh, especially if I'm going to be there for Shabbat. And so, um, and with, I know that, you know, my appearance 
may be shocking to some rabbis. I try to make sure I send my conversions um, on, on certification ahead of time so they know who I am. So I went to, um, uh, on an international trip and I was, um, attended this, I was very excited. I walked probably almost a one, one and a half hour walk to the, the Chabad um, that was in the city where I was attending, um, where I was working. Uh, went to the shul there and, you know, was, was greeted, you know, by the rabbi, met everyone there. There were about eight men there in total and uh, one woman visiting from Israel. And, um, and so one of the things that is the, I don't know if it's a fully written rule, you'll have to tell me, uh, rabbi, but one of the, at least for me, it's an unwritten rule, is that when there is, as a guest, um, you will give them the honor of an aliyah. And so during the Shabbat service, um, you know, I was expecting to go up to my aliyah and didn't, didn't happen. Um, so I was thought, okay, that's, that's, that's fine. There were only, you know, like eight of us there, but <laughs> that's okay. Um, we went to lunch together. Um, thereafter, Rabbi spoke to me, pulled me to the side and um, was like, you're the, you're the guy who wrote me, right? I said, Yes, yes, that, that was me. He said, okay, just, just, just making sure. And, um, and he asked me again, he basically asked me, was my certificate, like, was it true? Now it came from the RCA and um, he wanted to make sure like it wasn't a fortune or something. And I this, said- This might have more to do with me than you. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> because my Very signature helpful. is on that document. Okay. <laughs> so, I, so I said, no, this is from the RCA. He said, oh, okay, very, very respectable. We went to lunch. He asked for a little bit of a, if anyone had any thoughts about the Josh that week, it was uh, one of the, about the plagues and the plague of darkness. And I remember I said something about, we don't want the darkness of the world to enter our hearts and to become a darkness that we can feel and that our, that those around us can feel as well. Uh, was the, uh, what I took from that. I thought, oh, very good. Anyway, join them for Mincha, which for those of you who know, it's another time. There's three more Aliyahs. Now more men had left at this point. Now there's only a few of us there. And, um, and then, so skips me again <laughs> in order to go to other people who had already done it. Now, what was funny about the whole thing is two of the men who went up for Aliyah's to try to spark something and the rabbi said, oh, I already had an Aliyah today, rabbi. I already had an Aliyah. Because they were trying to let him know, you missed the one guy who hasn't had an Aliyah here today. We're noticing it. Could you please, you know, and they were in their own way trying to say, I don't need an Aaliyah. I, I'm sure there's other people that you can give an Aaliyah to. Um, but, you know, he didn't, he didn't get the inference. And so that was one of the, the very few times, I'm happy to say, in which I felt that it potentially was my, my race that made me, uh, that made the rabbi maybe look down on me and decide maybe I wasn't trustworthy enough um, or Jewish enough to give an aliyah, to give that honor to. Um, but I just want you to know that everything else has been very, very positive. I did have one issue at the Adath that I'm going to tell you because it was quickly resolved. I told my parents this story and it was something that warmed my heart. One of the first weeks that I ever came to the Adath, um, I was trying to find a seat. And very, many people, as I said, were very welcoming to me. And one of the old timers who was there, I will not say his name at all, 
um, out of respect, but he glared at me and I thought, here we go again. I'm in an environment that I thought was gonna be loving and yet another person glares at me, makes me feel like I don't belong, that I shouldn't be here and that I'm less important than other people. Service goes on. Rabbi, you gave a, a great drosh that day. Everything was good. We were then headed to Kiddush and I felt a tap on my shoulder. And this, the same man who gave me a glare said to me, you know what? I'm, I wanted to apologize to you. And I, I'm, my skin is kind of tough into these things, even though I'm sensitive to it. I wasn't expecting anything. And I kind of just said, oh, for what? I was very surprised. And, and he said, you know, when you came in, I, I, I felt bad throughout the whole service. I felt like I didn't make you feel, feel welcome. And I just want to apologize to you. And I want to just say, welcome to our shul. And, um, and you know, hope, hope to see you again next Shabbat. And I can't tell you how much that meant to me and how close this man became to me over the course of the next year or two. So I really do, you know, honor him, humbling himself and realizing that his ex simple expression could have caused me hurt. And, um, and that, meant, that meant the world to me. That's, that's a great story, um, especially because it shows that a person can recognize and can improve and, and can take the steps necessary uh, to, to overcome that. That's, that's, a, that's a great story. Um, what can shuls do better? What can all of us do to improve the comfort and welcome of people of every color in our shuls? Yes. Well, I think that um, I, what I just stated is, is most important is to, of course, simple thing, extend the hand of friendship um, to everyone that, that comes in. Um, to never make someone feel as though they are less than another. Um, because I think that's the worst feeling that any human has, where you feel as though, um, not that you're just not even accepted, but that you are seen as less than someone else. So, um, you know, the simple gestures, I think Adaf does it wonderfully, um, you know, being, uh, coming up to, to someone that's new, introducing yourself, the, the general principles that we learn in school, but that are so poignant and mean so much in society um, applies here. Um, I think also too is, um, it's also very, very important to, to let, to do activities that shows that the shul is support of all communities. Uh, many times I think there is a stereotype that's often found to be true is that the Jewish community only cares about the Jewish community. And despite tikkun olam, it's the feeling that the only people that are important in this world is another Jew. So I believe that when there are other cultural events, like if you know that, let's say there's a Mexican convert or something like that, something that can show that you love the Latin culture or that you are realizing that some holiday or something is coming up and you can do it in a way that of course doesn't offend Judaism, uh, it goes a very long way. Um, and um, 
so you know many people and <laughs> and i'll give a funny joke too is with um the other thing that that shuls can do and that i'm saying this really tongue-in-cheek is that if you see a black jew don't ask them if they're ethiopian mm. <laughs> <laughs> because you know i'm not insulted by it but you know there's many of my black brothers and sisters who are very insulted by someone asking that question immediately once you see a black Jew in a, con in a congregation. Sometimes it, it makes, it, it feels a bit like a stereotype as well, I think is, is how it comes off. Um, but just, I would say, even if you have that question in your mind, uh, I would say it's better just to get to know the person, hear their story. If you hear they were born in the Bronx, you know, after the first time talking to them, then you'll, you'll know they're probably not, you know, Ethiopian. Maybe their family's still Ethiopian, mm -hmm. I guess. But um, so that that's something. That, that's just a joke. I mean, it's it's nothing. But I know that some some of my black brother, Jewish brothers and sisters are very offended. Like they'll come back from a place and say, "How many people asked me if I was Ethiopian?" For me, I I, I take it lightheartedly, and I, I hope that maybe I am have some Sudanese or Ethiopian in my blood somewhere. But um, but that's also just a very lighthearted thing that can be avoided. Just get to know the person for the person. And it's great if shuls can highlight um, things from the cultures of the of the people of color that are that are there when the time is right. That that is so important. Um, I, I would just add one point that that I've heard a lot, and 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 I'd like everyone to be sensitive to, and that is, uh, in general, if you come to shul and there's someone there that does not meet your expectation of what a Jew looks like, um, it's usually not a comfortable thing to ask, um, how are you Jewish? Or why are you Jewish? Or how did you get here? That, that can, and, and, and I think um, sometimes it is asked sincerely without intending to, to be hurtful, but, but but we should hear that it often is perceived as as being hurtful and and we should we should not do that um you have given us a um a plan of what we need to work on all of us and i am so grateful to you for the lessons that you are teaching us and um speaking as the rabbi of adath I hope everyone that is participating now will take these lessons to heart and apply them in our personal lives and in our communal lives. And in that way, uh, you will have helped us to an even greater extent than you have already. So Carly and Jefford, thank you so much for this. Um, you have done all of us a tremendous service and we learn from you um, please know that we miss you uh, we love you we admire you and please give our best to your children and to your families thank you so much for doing this with us thank, thank you. you so much thank you so much thank you we so love much. you thank and you miss all. you all yeah yes miss and love you all we hope to stay in touch thank you